Welcome to another remote edition of the Daniel Energy Partners In-Basin Observations Podcast. Um, today, we are here in Fort Worth with Matt Wilkes from ProFrac and John Daniel and Sean Mitchell. And Bill Austin. And Bill Austin, the last one. Uh, just want to start out, uh, number one, Matt, thanks for letting us come to Fort Worth uh, and, and, and sit down and talk to you. I think most importantly, we want everyone to know this is ahead of earnings. We're not going to talk about earnings today. We're laying the ground rules. There's no earnings talk whatsoever. But we do want to talk about the frack market. Uh, you've got some interesting views. Um, maybe just at a high level, I'd love to start with just kind of your view. I think there's a lot of fear in the market today with investors about frack capacity coming on. Um, I think we've we've talked publicly and written about we think there's 25 to 30 new build fleets coming over the course of the next 12 to 18 months, depending on when you ordered your engines. And maybe let's just start at a high level. Where do you think and how are you thinking about incremental capacity, number one, and then number two, just big picture, where is this market going? Because there's tier four DGB, there's electric, and you have a lot of, of assets in, in the portfolio today. But let's just start with a high level. Adding incremental capacity, how do you think about it? Uh, well, first off, thanks for thanks for coming up and and uh, for for hosting me. Um, it's a it's a privilege to be on here and and uh, you know really enjoy doing these. So, um, just talking on the the overall fleet makeup. Uh, so we'll we'll end up with the largest fuel efficient fleet in the industry, and really excited to have that footprint. Uh, really really excited what that does to overall earning potential. We're, we're big believers in dual fuel, big believers in the electric fleets, and and uh, what that what that's what that's doing to the overall market, and how we how we see it changing it in real time on how uh, how resilient this cycle is going to be because of it. When you look at the overall supply chain, uh, it's tight. It's it's really tight. It's difficult to get engines, difficult to get transmissions. Uh, power ends, and then just the overall raw steel that you need for any of the consumables. It's super, super tight. Also seeing um, tight supply on anything with polymers, like your packing, your valves and seats, and and your union seals on, on any iron. But um, that is making its way in when you look at the 25 to 30 fleets that are being built right now we we believe that that um, most of those are replacement fleets and the ones that are true new builds are displacing vintage technologies that consume way too much fuel got it maybe talk a little bit about that just when, when, when we talk about the newer fleets whether it's electric or tier 4 dgb um, let's talk a little bit. I, th I think most of the fleets that are being built are new or are, are electric and or tier four DGB. Let's talk a little bit about fuel displacement. How do you think about that tier four? Yeah, and I'll just go electric? back. You, you, you put a, a, a post out on LinkedIn that sort of right. yep. made a lot of people think. You know, what prompted you to write that and just explain you know, how you're conveying the message to customers? So that was coming off the heels of... of um, you know, two energy conferences. Um, you know, of course, we went to, to your event, Glen Eagles in Scotland, uh, which was awesome. It was it was really cool. Uh, and then immediately 
the following week we had the Barclays conference. Mm-hmm. And the consistent question that we got in a roundabout way, it was asked a bunch of different ways, was um, is this, you know, are we already at New Build Economics? And, you know, is this, should we rely on, uh, you know, true discipline? Is this true discipline? Or is this forced discipline from a tight supply chain? And what I consistently you know, answered on that is like, I don't think it really matters if it was discipline or not. I, I don't think that this has to do with, hey, we're not adding capacity or anything like that. It's that this is not a new build cycle, it's an upgrade cycle. And I, what I was surprised by is that not a lot of people really knew what that meant and why it was different this time. And nobody wants to hear it's different this time. But, it, I mean, it, it's, it's true. Really, it truly is. Well, you we, laid it out pretty well in, in the way that you said it. You laid it out pretty well why it's different this time, or at least it feels like it is right now. Well, I mean, the operators are incredible negotiators, um, but a, a lot of what they do, they're contracting this stuff out. And so how do contractors behave when there's such a huge difference in total cost to operate a fleet. And when you look at an all diesel fleet, you're gonna be consuming anywhere from seven to 10 million gallons of diesel a year. And diesel is, is incredibly high right now. Diet mm-hmm. diesel is, is well over $4, 450 in some of the basins. So being able to get, uh, you know, in perfect conditions with, a, with some of these dual fuel fleets, you can get 70, 80% displacement but in a practical setting on location you're usually going to end up a good fleet's going to get 50 percent but that that cuts that bill in half mm-hmm. and with natural gas one mcf will just plate eight, eight gallons of diesel so you know at 450 a gallon eight gallons of diesel is 36 dollars so even at nine dollars or eight dollars it's at around 650 right now mm-hmm. Um, you also have the the uh, field level um, cost. You've got a differential that makes it a little bit cheaper. Uh, there's huge savings in displacing that diesel. And so that's really the foundation of this whole thing. That's what's driving the new builds. And if, if you do have a new build, you have a choice. You're going to build something that's fuel efficient. Mm-hmm. And you're going to try to get all the extras that you put on it, whether it's idle management um, and, and just really how you spec your fleet out. It's all going to be geared towards fuel efficiency for that reason. And on the electric, of course, you can get rid of all the diesel, but you've got to bring in power. Right. Can, and can you speak to the power market and how you'll solve for that? So the way we look at it is, is that you've got different basins with different requirements, different applications. Um, the pad size is is, uh, is smaller mm-hmm. in some areas, and so you want to be uh, respectful of that. And when we look at, um, you know, of course, we've got the U.S. well transaction, mm-hmm. and their vote's going to be October 31st. Really looking forward to it. Uh, we think it'll go our way, but if, um, you know, once we get on the other side of that, we're going to have the largest footprint in electric fleets and have the ability to underwrite a tremendous amount of power. So we look at that as being a, a huge opportunity for us as you know, we look at what, what do we do with that power? How can we make this more than just uh, about frack? Right. 
And so we're, we're looking at it and going in and saying, look, we want modular when it makes sense. And we, we can't use that everywhere because of the size of the pads. And when we're tight on space, we're gonna go with, with a, a larger platform, uh, just one big turbine. But in most situations, we want modular. You know, we want modular. Uh, anywhere from two and a half to five megawatts of power because when we look at the commercial opportunities of that business and being able to move in, especially after winter storm Uri, where the regulations have been changing a little bit, um, we think there's huge opportunities to go in and pursue commercial, those commercial opportunities. Fair enough. The, uh, is, is this cycle recovered? Well, first of all, if you go back to 2020, 2021, pretty much the industry was broke. Not many people were properly reinvesting in the business. As the cycle turns, call on equipment is high. Uh, people start renting equipment, buying used equipment. You know, as we, we talked earlier, I mean, a lot of that used equipment out there, we're not seeing the same number of auctions that we saw last couple of years. Are we, when do you think we hit the brick wall with the legacy diesel equipment? Because it is relatively old. And as, you know, in your earlier remarks, you talked about long lead times for things like engines, transmissions, et cetera. Just give us your thoughts on that tier two market. And without you know, all due respect to any of the competition that's out there, the folks that have a higher percent of legacy equipment, what would be your prophecy for, for that business model? So there's a lot of, there's a lot of great companies out there that have, that have good support systems. Their R&M cycles of, are top-notch, and you may not see too much of a difference from them, but you will see pricing pressure on diesel fleets, um, and especially any hiccup in, in a commodity or slight pullback. Those are going to be the first to go and the first to see that pressure and the first to concede. When you start looking at the smaller companies that don't have the infrastructure, that don't have the R&M capabilities, they're going to be going in. When you look at, you'll run for anywhere from four to six weeks, sometimes maybe eight weeks, and have great results, month-over-month month results. And then that next month you're stacked because you're waiting on your equipment mm -hmm. to get repaired. And some of these smaller guys have actually sold that by going to auction and picking up used pumps for two hundred and fifty, maybe three hundred and fifty thousand bucks, and they would use the engines as as parts or the the transmission as a replacement, and swap those out. And you wouldn't see too much of uh, you know too much interruption to that cadence. Mm -hmm. Now that the auction is uh, the auction market's just not really as, as cheap as it was. Uh, you're seeing pumps go for 850, maybe a, maybe a million bucks. Um, it doesn't make sense to use those as parts rooms anymore. And so you're gonna start seeing this, uh, this cadence more pronounced and, that, and, and start, develop a, start to develop a lope. Mm -hmm. And we, we think that this, this, it's gonna force attrition on the market. Attrition has been going on this entire time. Um, even with a very robust pricing environment, you still see a lack of attention because there's just no resources. You can't, it's very difficult to get engines, transmissions. You're, you're only getting those if, if you've got a bigger relationship with, 
with the OEM. Yeah. And then you start seeing the third-party repair shops fill up again because they're, they can't just swing an engine or swing a transmission. They've got to actually go in and work with somebody and get it repaired. And those lead times at repair shops are getting longer. The uh, recent transaction, you picked up the sand assets from Signal Peak Silica, right? If memory serves correctly. So you've got pretty good exposure with sand in West Texas. Can you speak about the opportunity set beyond the Permian and how you've been able to successfully blend in more vertical operations with sand and the traditional frack business? So we're, we're big believers in the supply chain. What we like about it is that there's, there's, um, there's not as much capex involved. Mm -hmm. And when you look at, at you know, EBITDA on your supply chain, the cash conversion is tremendous. It's amazing. Um, and, you know, with a frack fl fleet consuming half a million tons a year, if you know if you're able to go in and get just on on the sand a uh, thirty dollar gross margin, that's fifteen million of contribution margin per fleet, mm -hmm. and it really puts it in, into perspective. And then you go in and you look at okay, well, um, you know if you bundle it with the logistics and you get a big enough footprint, you can bring in um, some tremendous optimization. You know it's it's. The mismatch of mines to operators is pretty ridiculous. In many situations, you're driving an extra 100 miles to pick up the same sand that you could pick up just down the street. And we think there's a great opportunity to come in, work with operators, um, maintain a consistent price for them, but optimize that logistics network and, and keep, keep the miles that we don't drive and and keep those savings for ourselves um, and that in order to do that you need to be able to attach the logistics to the sand and and, uh, and just stop offering mine gate pricing mm -hmm. it's fob destination only maybe maybe one thing as I was, as you're talking i'm thinking about we you, you talked a little bit about the displacement being 50 percent on tier 4 dgb what is what do you think the displacement is for diesel on electric is there so I guess what I'm really trying to get to, Matt is is tier four. I, mean, the, I, I, I agree with your earlier assessment. There's going to be a bifurcation in the market: tier four DGB and electric versus tier two traditional diesel fleets. Is there going to be a winner, in your opinion, versus tier four DGB versus electric going forward? And what's the displacement of diesel in electric versus tier four DGB, or how do you think about it? Yeah, I, I don't. I don't think there's necessarily a winner. I think what you end up with is you're just you're going to end up seeing all the, the all diesel get flushed out. Got it. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think they completely go away. You're still going to have vertical wells. Um, basically, any situation that it doesn't ha it doesn't make sense to have sand storage, like if you uh, if you know if you still have a sand king on location. It probably doesn't make sense to come in with with uh, natural gas and build up the infrastructure or bring CNG in to, to support it because you're only out it's all about utilization you've mm -hmm. got to be able to move quick you need volume and so on your vertical wells your uh, uh, your refracts your things like that it just just go out there with diesel and knock it out right yeah it's like efficiency type of if you think about it from an efficiency perspective 
all of them are different, but those are those are more efficient to keep that that old system kind of going. But when you look at the dual fuel and you look at the the E fleet, I, I don't think it's necessarily about one or the other winning out. Um, there's there's uh, I, I think the E fleets are without a doubt uh, more efficient. They're cleaner, and they they uh, they eliminate all the diesel. Hmm. And so what you're the only diesel that you have is transportation, and so all the the every all the dyed diesel is you're pretty much wiping it out. You bring in a gen set that's you know being you know call it nine hundred thousand to a million bucks um, a month, um, and then the natural gas that you consume if if it's if you would have consumed ten million gallons then you would have 1.2 BCF a year of gas. And so it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's, pretty, it's pretty amazing how, how much diesel cost it actually wipes out. Now, how much do you share with the operator? Yeah. That's, right. that's the was, big question. I was going to go out of that, down that road. Um, you know, obviously there's a little bit of a arm wrestling with your customer. You want to be able to keep as much of that for yourself. You're the one who made the investment, right? Right. And, and you know, every time you turn around, you, you, you know, put a tremendous amount of CapEx into new platforms and lots of innovation in this space, but who's the beneficiary of these improvements? And I, I think, you know, this is always going to be a tug of war, but that argument aside, no matter how it goes, <laughs> the end result is putting pressure on diesel fleets. Yep. And when do, you know, after the, after the operator squeezed every drop out of, of any fuel savings from you, <laughs> then they're going to move on and wonder why am I paying full freight on a conventional fleet and I have to pay for all the diesel. Yep. And so who's going to make up the difference between these platforms? And we think that pressure ends up on the horsepower side. And no matter how strong the market is, the, the deeper we get into this upgrade cycle, the more you're going to see this being a, an um, you know, unmistakable. They, they're not going to be able to step over it for very much longer. And we're starting to see it kind of creep in now yeah. where that pricing pressure is being put on these old diesel fleets. And they're the ones that'll cough it up first. Um, and I believe they're the only ones that will have to cough it up. And, cause you can't, you want you want price savings. Well, don't pay these guys 93 million a year. You back out the 45 million on diesel and you're still at 48 million bucks. If they want a price cut, pay less for the diesel fleets. Right. And make yep. them pick up the slack. Because these fuel-efficient ones, we're not cutting. The E-fleets, we're not cutting. Right. In fact, how much does it cost to go back to those guys? And there's a lot to negotiate with. There's a big spread. And that tug-of-war, you know, we're like, we'll get a second wind. They'll get a second wind. It's going to go back and forth. <laughs> But the one that the pain's really going to be put on is these old diesel fleets. Right. A, a quick one. Th th this morning, I was, uh, I was 
Jamie Dimon was interviewed by CNBC, or maybe it was yesterday. I don't remember the exact day of the interview, but he speculate was speculating that uh, you know the market might have another twenty percent downside. Feels like recession is six to nine months away. You know, all we hear about is global recessionary fears. Is someone running a company right now? I mean, you, even though the fundamentals in the field are pretty good today, you can't ignore what might be some you know headlights coming down the train track heading towards you. How is that impacting, if at all, your view on the the willingness to continue investing more in the business? Or at what point do you hit pause and say, let's just see where this plays out? Because you're also battling long lead times. If you step out of line, someone's going to take your spot in theory, potentially, and you get pushed further back in the queue. So just with that backdrop, what do you think? You know, it's 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 so weird to see uh, energy get blamed for uh, inflation and for uh, energy to be the problem and the solution at the same time. Um, it's I I, I I think that this you know I'm not a I'm not an economist uh, uh, certainly not a, uh, a a scholar or uh, you know I've, I've actually. You know, had a job and been employed, um, so I'm uh, so I'm not qualified to to be on on the uh, a Fed chair or anything like that. But you are running a business, <laughs> and so I, I think that they've got a massive issue. I, I think that they're they're going about this the wrong way, uh, way too aggressive. Uh, the wheels are starting to fall off. You're seeing it in currencies. You're seeing the pensions, all the issues that they've got in in uh, Great Britain, but. Um, Look, this is a supply side issue, and it and it's not gasoline and diesel that's that's causing the inflationary pressures. It's it's a lack of natural gas and and the complete loss of industrial activity in Europe. You're not seeing you're not getting steel anymore from Europe. Uh, you're not seeing fertilizers, the petrochemical industry, plastics. It, it's it's all of it. Natural gas is what's driving the inflationary pressure. And it's not here in the U.S. It's it's in Europe. And these were issues that were in play before Russia invaded. Right? Yep. Yep. And so I, I I think I think what we're seeing is a lot of politics, uh, people throwing stones. Um, I mean, if Diamond would run, you know, I I don't care what ticket he was on, if he was blue or red, um, I'd be a big supporter of that guy. That he's he's amazing. But I'm not too concerned or too worried about it. I think we are the solution, and I believe in in uh, free markets, free enterprise, capitalism works. It it uh, you know the cure for high prices is high prices, cure for low prices, low prices, and I, I think that they're they're uh, working on the wrong side of the football mm-hmm. right now, and it's it's a. Uh, I, I don't think that it's it's it really slows down too much. Now, as far as as far as how we look at deploying capex, it's that's why it's so important that you have quick returns and the overall multiples, the valuations that you see in in oil field services and a lot of the and that flows through, you know, even more aggressively on the private side, mm-hmm. and we see. Tremendous cash flow opportunities and being able to to uh, go in and and uh, 
put capital to work in this environment to really solve the issue. Like I, I, I'm not going to fight the Fed, but at the same time, this is a, a supply side. This is not Powell's Volcker moment. Right. Yep. This needs to, to have some supply side economics. Um, and this isn't a, a fiscal policy error as much as it is a bank regulators issue. They will not lend to companies that are in the energy space. Yep. The, you're, you're positive on energy right now, right? So you're, you're glass half full. Let's say you're wrong and the wheels do come off. What would be the playbook in that scenario? Do you even think about that? I mean, if, you, if you're lean optimistic, you probably don't spend all the time thinking about that, but I'm just curious, like, yeah. and I know things can change, right? But, in, but just big picture, what would, you, what would you want to do? Well, I mean, at, at the end of the day, we're a risk manager, right. and, and that's my job is to be a risk manager. And so we look at the opportunities, and only after we're comfortable with the risks do we actually move forward and, and do anything. Um, if it does slow down, it's we've that's why we've gone through to work on our supply chain get our lead times down so short because by the time you do hit the stop button you you've if you've got an 18 week lead time you're gonna have yeah inventory for 18 weeks mm-hmm. and wondering where all your cash is yeah and so we want to make sure that we don't run into issues like that and minimize them as much as possible uh, working closely with your vendors to make sure that the, it doesn't stack up on you. But when you look at the overall market, it's the global market. Uh, we're not we're not too terribly concerned. We've, we've got how much would it slow down? And you know, would we see another situation like COVID? No. Like yeah. I, I, I sure as hell hope not. Yeah. Um, but. Recently, you had OPEC come in with with uh, the output cut of two million barrels. I think it ended up being about a million. Right, actual. the headline numbers, yeah. And and now, leading into the midterms, every you know, everybody in Washington, like the red side, won't even say anything about it because it's just it's a you know it's a losing argument for them. And the Democrats are, are saying, oh, we're going we're gonna to get even. We're going to cut funding. Or, you know, the nature of our relationship is going to change now. And it, I, I think America doesn't have allies. They have interests. And if they don't like the output cut, well, they're not going to like somebody blowing up Abkayuk again mm-hmm. or any other production facility. And so we protect our interests. They're not cutting anything. They're showboating, like they always did. Both sides, that's all they do is showboat. Yeah, and it's interesting too, right, because you've got Biden now saying he's going to release another 10 million barrels from the SPR, and I'm thinking to myself, like, what does that really mean in, in the big picture? Uh, I, I do think it gets politicized, unfortunately. Um, I think, you know, what it sounds like to me as we kind of – come to somewhat of a close here on the on the podcast is you're not that concerned uh, I mean this is kind of where we started but it feels like you're not as concerned about a new build cycle in frack it feels like you're much more in the camp of we're upgrading the fleets to tier 4 DGB and electric for the most part some of the stuff gets retired that's tier 2 diesel fleets um, there's a place in the market for for all three probably uh, you, it, it just feels like um, 
maybe you're more optimistic that we're not, and, and it is different this time. I agree with you. I do think it's different. I think there's a couple of things that are different. You have a le- access to capital is different today for the sector at large. I mean, you have access to it, but not everyone does. Commercial banks have kind of run from the sector. Um, I think there are fewer people willing to put capital at risk to build new equipment today, uh, whether it's private equity or uh, family offices. Um, But to me, it feels like, just kind of recapping what we've talked about, you're definitely in the camp. It feels like that you're not worried about a, a new build cycle in front of us in terms of new frac capacity coming into the market, but more this is an upgrading of the existing fleets that are out there, maybe with some additional capacity. But it's it doesn't sound like you're you're nervous on that front. Not at all. Not not worried about new build economics. Um, it, this is upgrade economics, and this is about transitioning the entire fleet into uh, fuel efficiency and it's very similar to what you saw with the drilling rigs with uh, moving to high spec rigs um, the difference being that this is uh, our upgrade cycle is coupled with a bundling process whereas the rigs were going through a debundling process when they're going to higher spec rigs um, not worried about uh, uh, you know about new build economics at all uh, believe that that we're possessed, you know, positioned incredibly well. Um, the other thing is too is if you, as you look at this upgrade cycle, it's going to cause further consolidation within the large players because who who are commissioning these new build fleets? Who are commissioning the uh, fuel yep. efficient upgrades? Right. And it's not your small players. Right. And any of the companies that have uh, public companies that have, um, you know their primary business isn't frack, uh, they're not as likely to invest in it and to push for these upgrades. If they do, they're testing the water, they're checking them out, but they're not really making a full-blown push like you're seeing from the larger committed players. And, and going back to the, to the macro, um, we're in the middle of an energy crisis. And the, recession, the recessionary pressures are all focused on uh, tamping down demand, um, you, you with the potential of some contagion issues coming out of Europe, and we watched that really close. But this is an energy crisis, and the world is is uh, has a massive policy error that they refuse to admit. And the longer they kick the can, uh, the worse it's going to worse it's going to get. Just like if they continue to release barrels from the SPR. Yeah. What happens if we have an emergency? A real emergency. A real emergency. Yeah. And that's kind of what we've backed ourselves into a corner. And I think that the, um, there's, I don't know if there will be capitulation or if they'll just get voted out. Right. But one of those is going to happen and you're going to see a policy shift. And it's happening right now in Europe. Yep. Yep. Well, you, you were in Scotland, right? And, And I think I said this on one of the panels is, is, you know, they were the tip of the spear on ESG and, uh, you know, going wind and solar five years ago. Today, and when we were in Scotland, these guys seem like they're more the tip of the spear now on energy security and reliable and affordable energy, even though they, they may not want to admit it, but every newspaper, every TV station when we were there basically was talking about, we need to drill more oil and gas wells. We've got to bring energy back into the mix. We've kind of... 
I say this way too often in our shop, but it's like jumping out of an airplane without a parachute, jumping out of the fossil fuel airplane without a right. parachute, right? Trying to figure out what are we going to do now? And to your point, like there's going to have to be some policy changes, uh, not just in Europe, but in the U.S. Yeah. Well, and, and it's these policies that I think have led to the right. inflationary environment that we have. And well, restricting supply. You talked about supply side earlier. Restricting that supply is going to come back and bite them in right now. Yeah. And, and rather than admit fault, um, right. it's too easy to blame Putin. Right. And they come in with price caps, uh, windfall taxes, um, further stimulus. And I mean, you're, seeing, you're seeing the same from... California right now where they want to put in windfall taxes and then send everybody 1100 bucks um, you know to combat inflation and make it more palatable and like well you're, you're making the problem worse yeah mm-hmm. like, and it's these guys just want to this is politics it's not economics and economics will come back and it will balance out, and you won't like how it's done. Right. Yeah. Right. And when you look at our acquire, retire, replace, we don't just buy equipment just to stack it. Right. Um, it's option value. Yep. And you, you need to be able to absorb anything that comes up if it gets if it gets uh, really really tight, and there's a call on energy, and there's a policy shift. It comes down to who's who's still around, and who's positioned to answer the call. All right. Well, Matt, we can't thank you enough again for having us in your office in Fort Worth. Uh, can't thank you enough for your support of DEP. Um, with that, uh, yeah, I think that's happen. about it. But like again, thanks a lot for letting us do this and letting us come out here and, and talk to you a little bit more. And we'll try to get this thing released as soon as we can. Awesome. Good luck with the guys. Yeah. Thanks, yeah. guys. Thank appreciate uh, appreciate y'all bringing me on. Absolutely. Yeah.